0: Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with vocalist and songwriter Eric Hoffman and producer, arranger and guitarist Ken Hatfield. They opened up at length about their new collaboration, the 2023 album Stirring Still. This project is an intimate set of duets for voice and guitar featuring the distinctive baritone vocals of song stylist Eric, accompanied by award-winning composer and guitarist Ken. With performance venues shut down, Eric and Ken embarked on this recording as a creative outlet. Conceived as a reflective yet hopeful exploration of universal themes like love, loss, hope, and possibility, the choice of material was crucial. After a decade of performing together in a variety of settings, these two have developed an intuitive music rapport. Stirring still demonstrates their simpatico interplay it's a great album great interview enjoy
1: it's great to hook up with you and talk about the new project so thanks for taking a minute out before we get into stirring still i want to know you know the last three years with COVID, especially now that we're starting to look at that month of march coming up on the calendar i think we all have ptsd i'm curious how you survived this COVID period as a part of the music community and how it subsequently has changed the way that you approach things now
2: Actually, this project kind of was born out of the whole experience and, you know, uh, the inability to play live. And uh, Ken and I had been doing home concerts for a man who had become paraplegic. I was friendly with his mother, and she asked at one point if I would, you know because he loved music so much if i was available to do home concerts for him so i contacted ken and we started doing these concerts over a couple of years right before the the uh whole shutdown happened she had paid us up front for five sessions and then you know i suddenly realized oh we're about to go do, do a concert for possibly the most immunosuppressed person we know. Maybe this is a terrible idea. And uh, at that point, you know, contacted them. They're like, yeah, thank you. Don't come. But also just keep the money because you guys are perhaps a better investment than the stock market at this point, which was a nice sentiment. And uh, previous to all of that, we had, uh, Jeremy, the young man had you know come up with the idea of writing a song together. He had kind of written some poetry, so we eventually finished this song that actually appears on the album It's the last cut uh the time I spend with you and he uh they requested that we do a, like an iPhone recording so that he could have it and listen to, and we decided to instead use the money that they had already given us to go into the studio and record that song along with one of ken hatfield's originals and from that because the the that session was so successful we continued to record two songs at a time one original and one cover if you will or standard and uh that's how it that's how it happened. We just continued. Wanted, it to, you know, to, the two of us to go into the studio, and we ended up with what is now stirring still. So it was sort That's of a like. a great story. Yeah, it was sort of therapy and just a way to continue to stay with it. And uh yeah, so it was really, it really is something that kind of captures the mode of what that was like for us sort of like there's a lot of songs about spring and, you know, some sad songs, but like the idea that, you know, in the dark of winter, spring awaits. And, you know, that's how it kind of became and evolved. But it was really born of, you know, that period.
1: Well, and it stands as a document that's a silver lining of that. It, it sounds like it was a therapeutic Great thing that did so many things. It, there there's a lot of birds at once with one stone.
3: Eric and I had been working together for the last decade a lot, and we kind of developed a certain kind of rapport and ability to to kind of like you know intuit what the other other one was going to do. And when the pandemic hit, there were really no gigs. To be done anywhere, so you know we both needed a creative outlet, and we essentially live in the same neighborhood, a couple subway stops away from each other in Astoria, which is part of Queens in New York City. And uh, so it was an easy project to kind of like you know start like dipping your foot into the into shallow end of the pool before you decided to jump in, because a lot of people are aware that. You know, to record any kind of real acoustic stuff with people performing together live at the same time, even as small as a duo, uh, is an expensive project in New York City. And without getting into all of the horrors of the, the you know, ridiculous amounts of um, minuscule remuneration we get for streaming, um it, you, you kind of have to figure out what you're going to do. And since I was the producer on the record... We we kind of took it slowly, but what started it was uh, an interaction with a young man we'd been playing some home concerts for. He was a he'd had a, a stroke and an aneurysm and became a quadriplegic in his late forties, and um, we used to play a home concert for him every other Tuesday, and playing for him was just wonderful. I mean, there's this funny thing that happens when you're performing for an audience um, that. Even if you don't see who it is that's really listening intensely, you can feel it. So when this young man, Jeremy, would like listen, it was almost like we were playing for a thousand people instead of just, you know, one or two people. And, um, so we developed a real, you know, strong relationship and a fondness for him. And one day he said he had an idea for a song he wanted to write about his daughter. So he recited the first, the opening line of, of what became the time I spend with you and I immediately heard a melody and a chord progression which I played and then Eric sang it so we kind of had the beginnings of a verse which we fine-tuned over the next, you know, few concerts with him but he didn't understand the concept of needing a bridge so after multiple attempts I had already written a melody and chord for a bridge but we still couldn't come up with any lyrics for it so jeremy's mother annette berkowitz is a very successful author and poet she's the sister of the architect daniel lebeskin and um, so we approached her and she sent me the lyrics that you know i had to kind of tweak a little bit here or there just to make it fit with what i'd already written uh but that ended up resulting in two bridges for the the song so that's why that song has two bridges instead of one but um Right after that occurred, the pandemic hit, and th- these folks had already paid us for the next round of concerts, and I wanted to give them their money back. They said, no, things are going to be really tough during the pandemic. You guys need it more than we do, but would you do us a favor and record it on, a, on your iPhone? And so I decided, you know, to approach Eric about going into Park West Studios in Brooklyn and recording it properly, and using the money that they had paid us for the concerts that we were not going to be able to perform to pay for the studio time. So we went in and recorded um, the time I spend with you. And uh Juniper Street, and we loved the the result. So that became the impetus for us getting together periodically during the pandemic, rehearsing a few more tunes. I'd suggest tunes, Eric would suggest tunes. I'd kind of write out rough arrangements, and then we'd re- you know rehearse them either at Eric's place or mine. And when we felt we were ready with the next two or three tunes, we would then go back into the studio. So we slowly proceeded that way to create the record. And the only guiding principle behind it was just doing what we wanted. But we were kind of aware that it should feel like what it felt like to be going through the pandemic in New York, since that's a reflection of our lives. And while it's not humorous in the same way Boccaccio's Decameron is, it was kind of envisioned as something like that, which is, hey, this is something that you can you know, go to um, for some kind of respite from the horrors of the, the, you know, what's going on during the pandemic. Because in New York, especially, we lost a lot of people. I mean, I lost dozens of colleagues, people I'd worked with for years. Ian Finkel comes to mind right away. we have been working together for 40 years. So, you know, but we didn't want it to be overly sad. We wanted it to be a reflection of, you know, like sincerity. And, you know, that's why I say in the liner notes, it's a, you know, it's about love and love lost, and you know, and persevering and trying to overcome and you know, basically keeping on, keeping on.
1: Talk to me a little bit about how this musical relationship started for you guys and how it's gained
3: steam. Well, do you want to talk about that, Eric? So I don't, I don't take hug up all the airspace. <laughs> uh, yeah, we met. Uh, I have
2: a family member who has, you know. I guess you would call them a high-profile individual in our time, and or she married a high-profile individual of our time, and the, at one point before this wedding, which is at a fabulous location, you know, not to be disclosed, and uh, we, uh, she asked me if I would sing a song at some point during the festivities, and I was like, absolutely, positively, and uh, at that point, the entertainment company uh, that they hired for the event asked you know they contacted them the entertainment company contacted Ken who was already hired to play the wedding and was like you know we have a family member that wants to uh, sing a song and you know usually for a wedding band or whatever that's you know, nightmare scenario, possibly. And, you know, like I was giving Ken's number, we talked initially for an hour on the phone and had a a uh, rehearsal and it went well. And, you know, and we performed at this wedding and we've been kind of uh, continuing to perform together ever since. So sort of almost a chance meeting. And it turned out they were
3: both not too far away from each other. And, uh, yeah. I also had a steady gig, which, you know, younger people now call a residency, which seems kind of uh, pretentious to me. But uh, I had a steady gig every Tuesday night at a little place called Fetch up on uh, 3rd Avenue between 92nd and 93rd Street. And basically, it was myself and, you know, different bass players, Harvey S., Hans Kladischnig, Gene Torres. Um, all did the gig at various different times, and I would bring in a guest artist. Often it was an instrumentalist, Rob Thomas on violin, or Vigletti Panamorov on trumpet, or uh, Jim Klaus on tenor saxophone, uh, or Jamie Baum on flute. But I also started bringing Eric in like at least once a month to sing, and that further kind of helped us develop our rapport. And then Eric... Had gotten a steady, uh, summer gig doing a a concert at a church in the West Village, an outdoors thing for the, for the community. And Eric started calling me for that. So all those things kind of, you know, gave us the opportunity to, uh, work together a lot. And like anything, you know, you, the people that you know are often the people that it's easiest to work with. Um, especially, you know, if you're not, if you're not trying to get like, you know, a cast of famous stars, you know, like I, I can't exactly call, you know, uh, uh, Diana Krall or Herbie Hancock to join me on a record without having a, a pretty big budget. So, you know, uh, you t- kind of tend to develop relationships with the people that you work with. And, um, ours seemed to be like a really solid one, and people liked what we were doing. Uh, a lot of times, you know, people would, t- uh, ask to be on our email list so we could notify them of gigs, and you know, all of that was a lot easier before the pandemic. But that's how we kind of started to develop uh, this 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 thing. And, uh, like the very first song on the record, I wrote, um as Adamant, based on a, a line in uh, Claude Lelouch's uh, film, uh, A Man and a Woman. And years later, Eric. Was interested in writing lyrics to some of my songs, and he wrote lyrics to a couple of them, and that was one of them. So when we were figuring out this project, um, that was a, another tune that you know we ran by, and, and we both agreed, yeah, we should record that one. So a lot of the stuff is just you know, like it's like any relationship, you know, you give and take. You try to be there for your the person you people you're working with or collaborating with, and they try to be there for you. And my experience has always been that's where the best art comes from especially in the performing arts
1: so usually whenever we start talking about a project you've already moved on to the next project what's the next thing for you guys what are you working on now
3: well this is pretty new and uh, you know i i have to wear you know it's on my record label and i'm the producer so that means i have to wear the hats of uh you know hiring the radio promo people and following up with what they do and um hiring traditional p r people and doing interviews like this one and um we we've been we've been talking about doing a project with a larger band uh but a lot of that's kind of gonna be predicated on whether or not we can get some some gigs some festivals some concerts with uh the duo because it's a lot easier to book. You know, in addition to the difficulties you run into nowadays with, you know, getting paid so little for uh, the format that most people use, which is streaming. Um, in addition to that, you got to travel, and over the last twenty more years, the travel thing for performances has changed a lot. Nobody gives you signed contracts with fifty percent deposits, and they don't provide you with hotel rooms. Or airplane tickets anymore. You have to basically purchase all of that in advance, and then hope when the gig's over, the promoter or the club owner actually pays you what they said they were going to pay you. Because as soon as you finish in, in town A, you got to move on to town B, and um, that dramatically complicates you know how much money you can afford to invest in. The uh, in the tour that would support the record if nobody's buying the record. and I mean, I don't know if you know, but the statutory rate for streaming, a lot of streamers pay a little bit more than this, but the statutory rate is 0.0026% of a penny for commercial subscription streams and 0.0021% of a penny for uh, commercial non-subscription streams. It's so bad that the British Parliament... Concluded in a study they did of this last year that eighty five percent of all the musicians on the streaming services are generating less than two hundred fifty dollars a year in income, so you know you spend thousands of dollars to make a record, thousand more to promote it, and if you you know you, you got to get some gigs. so you know we felt this is an easy thing to book. Eric needs a microphone. I need a microphone in front of the, the classical guitar that I'm playing, and we can play anywhere that's got a PA system and two microphones. Um, but again, it's you're trying to book stuff now. The landscape has changed so much. You know, you'll know, you have somebody say, well, look, look, what's your social media, media following? And I'll go, well, i got 5,000 friends on Facebook. And then they'll say, well, you want, to book, you want us to book you in St. Louis. How many of those 5,000 followers on Facebook live in St. Louis? How the hell do I know? Our plan is to do a larger project. Probably two horns because Eric's a really great trombone player. Uh, guitar, bass, drums, and a, a Hammond B three because I used to work with Jack McDuff and Jimmy McGriff and all those Chitlin' Circuit organ groups. And Eric likes that music a lot, and so we kind of have an affinity for for that, which would you know be a more fleshed out project. But again, that you know, that some the money's got to come from to pay for the studio time and the musicians. And if nobody's buying the recorded music, you got to get gigs. If there aren't any gigs. Where does the money come from?
1: Well, let's let's stay in the present here and I want to know where can folks pick up Stirring Still and find out about anything as this year kinda of opens up and the live music venues open up, where's the best place for them to figure out what you're doing live or anything else you guys have done?
3: Well, I've got a you know, my website KenHatfield.com, and there's a music page where they can, you know, go and purchase any of the 11 CDs I have out as a leader. The most recent one is Stirring Still, so that's the first one that pops up. Right now, it's available for digital download or buying physical CDs. We're we're doing a run of vinyl, which will um, be available in June. Uh, And Eric has his own website as well. What's the uh, the the URL, Eric? com, and uh so you, you those are places where you can find out what we're doing and those are also places where you can access uh you know you can you can get the links to do uh digital download. I mean we set this up for 22 different uh, streaming platforms in addition to uh you know physical CDs and uh, uh digital downloads from my website. And as I said there'll be vinyl uh, in June. Uh, as an aside, a, a young f- friend of mine was real, He was really into vinyl was excited about that, but an older friend of his said, why would anybody do vinyl? So he, he said, why, how do you explain why you're doing vinyl? And I said, uh, well, the current rate for vinyl that people are paying is $30 for a vinyl record at the 0.0026% of a penny per stream rate. That means to make the same money from streaming that I can make from the sale of one vinyl record, or we can make from the sale of one vinyl record, I have to have 11,538 streams. Well, That kind of explains yeah. the math pretty, pretty vividly. So yeah. uh, you know, I hate to sound like a business person, but you know, it's Monday, and i and even though it's a, a holiday, I'm, I'm I'm dealing with the business end of, of of this record most of the morning. So that's kind of front and center. The truth of the matter is is that we we do it for the music more than anything else, but you know. I can't write a string quartet if I'm homeless living in the subway in New York City. <laughs> so you've got to be able to keep a roof over your head, clothes on your back, and food on the table. And um, yeah. the whole digital paradigm shift presented something that I don't think most people questioned. I don't know if you've ever read Jerry Lanier, but uh, he has a great book out called Who Owns the Future. And in it, he says, if you get something for free on the internet, you're not the customer, you're the product. And no but people don't question why they why they're getting these things for free. You really think somebody's giving away my music or Eric's music or our music out of the goodness of their heart? They figured out yeah. how to you data mine and surveil your activities and they figured out how to attach advertising to it. The irony is is that there are laws that protect uh the digital service providers when they facilitate what would otherwise be illegal things like copyright infringement. Uh, in particular, a law called um, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act from 1998 has a clause in it, Section 512, which is a safe harbor that basically says if somebody steals our music and puts it on YouTube, I can't go after YouTube or Google. i got to go after the person who actually uploaded the stuff illegally, but they are so lax in their requirements about what they'll let people upload. In the early days, I could have literally said I owned the rights to Sgt. Pepper's and uploaded it, and they wouldn't have questioned it because their legal view of things was once you say you have the right, the onus is on you, not on them. And the laws were written that way at the dawn of the digital paradigm shift because nobody really knew what was going to happen. Back then, people were using dial-up modems; It could take you 45 minutes to download a, download a song. So the a whole industry has been created on the backs of content creators using their content as clickbait for what is essentially a surveillance economy, and the wealth that's come from it has not been shared with the people that create the content. That's the lifeblood of the system. So you know, in addition to trying to create music and put it out into the world, I'm, I've also been forced to become an artist rights activist, trying to fight and champion the cause of my fellow musicians who are getting far less than a fair deal right now from the streaming services. Radio, like what you do, is so important because it's a different business model. Even if you do stream yeah. the music, like you, you, know, you guys take the time to tell the people who the musicians are. I was telling somebody the other day, the guy who invented the MP3, he didn't think it, that metadata about who the sidemen were were important. Well, that's but if, I, if I'm going to listen to Miles Davis's band, I want to know whether Ron Carter or Paul Chambers is playing bass. Yeah, I want to know who's playing drums. I want to know, is Wayne Shorter or Coltrane playing saxophone? Those are things that you want to know. And for somebody to, to assume that nobody cares about that would be tantamount to saying, I'm a fan of the New York Yankees, but I don't know who the shortstop is. That inside yeah. baseball is what makes being a jazz fan fun. And the entire system has eviscerated that. You can't find that information easily, but radio programs like yours provide that information to people. And that's what creates the real fans who then will tell their friends about the music in ways that are far more meaningful than anything you can achieve through advertising.
1: Yeah, no, I get it. And, you know, from my end of things, I'm not making anything doing this, which I will, I've I've always been astounded by. I, I feel like I'm in, You know, I know you, the musicians are making the music, but from my end, this is something that I've tried for a while to find some way, because I need to, especially now with the the way the world is and the inflation and the economy the way it is, there's just no money to go around, but there's, you know, and, and that's exactly what you guys are going through. It just seems like a very confounding, strange thing that it's not somewhat easier or at least feasible to get some level of compensation that's equitable to what you're doing. And I, and I know that happens in the music industry with streaming all the time. It just baffles me. Because you know, if you break this down, this isn't, it doesn't take all of that money that you don't make to produce and to put this out there. You know, well, we're the, talking about the, bandwidth and things like that.
3: But the digital paradigm shift has only reduced the cost of one thing and that's distribution It doesn't reduce the cost of the production of a product especially if you're you know musicians that want to play acoustic instruments together in the same room at the same time in a big city where the, the, the cost of rent for people that are going to have a professional recording studio is is exorbitant now maybe the world in the future will be content with sampled sounds that you can assemble and then go into the closet in your bedroom with a microphone and either sing or rap or play over top of that but I'm sorry in my experience, jazz is a team sport. You know, you're playing together, you're having a conversation. I can't record my part of the conversation, you know, in in Ohio and then have you have your response in Boston you know, and have it have anything that resemble anything that feels like a real jazz performance. And yeah. um you know, I, I just don't think people questioned any of that. I think the, the the powers that be, as this evolved, even though a lot of them started out being really positive and supportive and wanting to say things like "do no evil," um, once you get into the actual capitalist part of raising the money, you realize how vulnerable you are. I mean, you know, the laws changed dramatically in this country in terms of antitrust and investments and stuff like that during the Reagan years. And, you know, it's taken a long time for us to see all of the implications of it. I used to write a lot of music for film and television, and I got to see firsthand when it first happened what they were doing, because uh, companies like Ted Turner's, you know, whether it was CNN or TNT or TBS, he claimed that... um, he shouldn't, be, he, he shouldn't be restricted by the FCC because he wasn't broadcasting over the airwaves. So the FCC no longer regulated what he was doing. And he also said that unlike uh, traditional broadcasters like NBC, he had no affiliates, therefore he should only pay the local rates for uses of content, which are dramatic in the case of music. If You have a local piece of music, say, on NBC News in New York, you used to get paid a half a cent Times and times the number of minutes that you so if you had a minute and a half you'd get you know a uh, half a cent plus two point five so point seven five percent of a, of a penny and but if it was national you'd get a full five cents but it was it was uh, multiplied by the number of affiliates so it could be substantial. Ted Turner comes along and says well, I don't have any affiliates because because he didn't he didn't have to broadcast from New York to Chicago to Denver to Los Angeles to get things across the country the way the traditional broadcasters were so. We've got a long history of whenever the technology changes, there's always business people that figure out an advantage that favors only them. They don't stand back and look yeah. at whether or not they're going to, you know, whether they're going to kill what was once a healthy ecosystem and make it, you know, like a dying barrier reef or something. And yeah. you know, I, that's that's so much of what the problem is. And in the case of the digital paradigm shift, the audience wasn't questioning anything. They were just being dazzled by the wonders of the technology. And let's face it, it's dazzling. It is wonderful. It's amazing. I mean, you know, all the things that that you can do with it. But it created, you know, like, like the rest of the overall economy. You know, you've got the haves yeah. and you've got the have-nots. But right now, the have-nots are the people that create the content. I mean, who wants a $1,000 phone that's just a phone? yeah right. you, you buy those devices so you can access all this content and you've now got a trillion dollar industry that's whining about play, paying a cent that they can't afford that so well how about if the CEOs and board of directors make less money yeah, yeah. but you know, yeah. you can't I get, get them it. to do that you can't get them to do that because the laws changed to favor you know the companies now their their number one responsibility is their shareholders not their clients not their customers not their employees not their, employees, not their community and that makes it really, really difficult once they enter the world that they have to enter in order to raise the capital to build and expand their business, which is generally done via selling stocks. They're vulnerable. I mean, I'll don't. you aware of this, but it's actually possible to go to investment bankers and tell them that you want to buy Company A that you do not own, and they're going to loan you the money using Company A as the collateral. Yeah, I get it. I, yeah. So how does a company come along and try to treat the musicians fairly in that environment? Yeah,
1: I understand. I totally understand. Yeah, it's a snake eating its own tail sometimes. But gentlemen, I to, to, to kind of end on a good note here, I just want to make sure that everyone 100% knows where to go to get the music. I, I'm looking forward to playing it on the show. I appreciate you taking time to explain it. It sounds like it was a wonderful project.
3: Uh, indeed we, we're really ha- we're really proud of it and happy with it It came out you know exactly the way we wanted and we you know it's folks like you that allow give people uh the opportunity to hear it that spreads the word and that's really the only way that art can have any impact in the way in the current time you know i mean it's you know i told somebody recently of uh bach and beethoven and and bird and and coltrane and all came back from the dead and uh, we're playing, uh, they wouldn't get a gig playing at the halftime of the Super Bowl. <laughs> They're yeah. not visual enough. Absolutely. People, people, look, people look at music, they, they don't listen. And, and the, the real truth of the matter is is what music has to teach us that the other arts cannot teach us comes from attentive listening. For sure.
1: Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to putting it on the show I appreciate you illuminating the backstory story and, and getting it out there. I'm looking forward to sending it. So, gentlemen, thank you. I appreciate it.
3: Joe's pleasure. Thank you very
1: much, Joe. Nice
0: thanks for listening and tuning in to another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players and minds in New York, Kansas City, and spots all over the world, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to both Ken and Eric for their time and cool. If you want to hear more Neon Jazz interviews, you can find us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Subscribe to us at YouTube, and for everything Neon Jazz, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends.
3: Neon Jazz.